Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. This is Nick, and I'm going to be your host for today. Um, so last year for Reformation Day, oh, actually, let's just step back for a second. Reformation Day is October 31st. It's the day marked for when Martin Luther in 1517 nailed his 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg. That sparked the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. Um, and so... For Reformation Day, you'll typically hear episodes on the Reformation around Martin Luther and the 95 Theses and the issues he discussed and things of that nature. And last year, we actually had three weeks of Reformation materials on Christ is the Cure. But my fundamental idea was let's discuss everything but Luther. The reason why it was simple, right? Luther tends to kind of get the credit and the attention during this period and just so we're all clear, we all recognize that it was God's providential hand and men were the means by which the Reformation occurred. But in terms of human participation, usually Luther gets most of the attention. So my idea was uh, the Reformation uh, consisted of a lot of people and events and mentalities, um, ideologies, right, leading up to it and even during it. Um, a, a point that I made in one of the episodes was that Ulrich Zwingli during the same exact time as Luther was doing the same exact things over in Switzerland. Um, so the point was, it was not a one-man show, nor was the Reformation sparked by one individual in a particular location. There, there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of things that preceded Luther and a lot of things that came after Luther and during Luther, right? So with that, I decided to take Reformation Day and turn it into a three-part series where we looked at first the Renaissance and humanism, episode 143. It's understand humanism in that context. You'll have to go listen. And then we looked at the various ripples of the Reformation, and I called that episode the wildfire, episode 144. And then for the dis sake of discussing the counter-reformation of Rome, I went into episode 145, and that discussed the Council of Trent and justification. And then 146 was an episode just on justification that was kind of linked to 145. It just it was a natural little segue, but they're not necessarily part of the Beyond Luther series. So anyway, I made this Beyond Luther series, and this year I decided I wanted to do the same thing. I wanted to expand it, and so I think the Beyond Luther series will be an annual series. We'll do Beyond Luther every Reformation Day and try to talk about everything but Luther. Um, could be a little fun challenge. But then again, it, it kind of doesn't work because I was like, well, at some point I'm going to have to discuss the Lutheran reformers. Maybe I can just wait till after Luther is off the scene. I don't know. So anyway, in the first two episodes of Beyond Luther, 143 and 144, they were designed to highlight heroes of the faith, sort of the moving parts of the Reformation, what led up to it. Um, but these two episodes are going to kind of talk about effects of the Reformation, how it snowballed, and the importance of it. Um, and of course, that application of importance, for the most part, I'm going to let you make. But we're going to just be talking about the domino effect that was the Reformation, right? Uh, so the Reformation was a domino 
um, effect, and we're just going to knock down one row of aligned dominoes. And so for this year, we're going to be focusing on the English Reformation and the Puritans, very popular um, group of people. And so I thought it'd be fun to discuss, and it's fitting as we go into November anyway. Now, for these episodes, I utilized three texts primarily. I'll put them in the podcast episode page. It's 2,000 Years of Christ's Power by Nick Needham, Volume 4. The Story of Christianity, Part 2 by Gonzalez, and A History of Christianity in the United States and Canada by Mark Knoll. But I also looked at Philip Schaff a little bit, but not as much, because he just... um, He was just kind of an extra at the end of it. So a lot of this material is put together by these three church historians. And um, whenever I use direct quotes, I'll let you know so I don't plagiarize. So let's begin with the English Reformation. We're going to set the stage for the Puritans. Um, So in the 1530s, the King of England, Henry VIII, uh, he began the Reformation of the English church. But this was actually done more out of a personal or political reason and a theological reason, and that's just one of those things where you, you kind of come across that quite a bit. But anyway, uh, Henry had been married to a woman known as Catherine of Aragon, but uh, she had failed to conceive a male child with Henry, and so he desired to divorce her. And he tried to remarry one named Anne Bolian. I hope I... Bolin, something like that. Oh, disclaimer, if you're new to the podcast, I am notoriously horrible at pronunciation so that's the name of the game here um anyway the church at the time which the roman catholic church denied his request to um, be divorced and to remarry and so this led him to cutting ties between the papacy that is the pope and england so henry was concerned with his personal matters not really reformation or supporting protestantism um, but the ties he cut became that domino, right? That domino in the large line that began the English Reformation. Now, uh, note that this was in 1530. Um, there were moving parts before this, but we're talking about in terms of big dog, you're talking about where church and state wasn't really separate. So this was a big deal. Um, so whenever the king gets involved, that, that's a big deal. And you'll see this tension in English Reformation history where um, a lot of stress is put on the people because well, now you have a Catholic king or queen. Now you have a Protestant king or queen. And so those dynamics, they, they radically change the, uh, I don't know, the habitat. This is a weird word to say. Habitat of the inhabitants and how relations between uh, civilians uh, plays out. But anyway, now as you can guess right at, the, you know, right at the beginning that the English Reformation would have an impact on the United States of America because, well, because we broke away from England. Um, and because they also had major Protestant movements moving and colonizing in North America. And we'll get to that, how that kind of happened in a minute. So this really started rippling heavily in the 1530s, right? So 1517 is Wittenberg and what's going on in Zurich with Martin Luther and uh, Urge Zwingli. And then we get to the 1530s where the big pieces start moving for the English Reformation. So in 1547, Edward VI became king, and he was advised by Protestant um, individuals to push harder for the reform of England. Um, And they gave more power to those bishops who were in England, and bishops are basically head elders over a particular um, uh, district, if you will. And they also gave more power to the archbishops uh, 
who are in England and the archbishops are over a set of bishops. Um, it's kind of hard to, you know, structure that verbally like this, but, but the point being was that these higher ups got more power. Um, and one in particular that you'll hear often in various narratives is the archbishop of Canterbury. In this particular instance, it's Thomas Cranmer. Um, and he was a mixed bag of Lutheranism and Reformed theology. And so he was kind of in the middle, but he's highly respected in terms of the Reformation. Now, at the same time, Roman Catholic practices and customs were removed um, that had that had managed to stay around with King Henry. Because remember, King Henry wasn't particularly um, interested in Protestant Reformation. He was just worried about his personal affairs. So now that Henry was out of the way and Edward VI had advisors kind of pushing for these bigger reforms, that moved along a little bit more. But this came to a pause when Edward died in 1553, and then he was replaced by his Catholic half-sister, Mary Tudor. If you don't know who Mary Tudor is, she is known as Bloody Mary. Um, Mary, uh, there's a lot to be said about Bloody Mary. Um, recommend you look more into her, but she basically charged roughly 288 Protestants to be burned at the stake for their convictions, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, that we just mentioned. Um, others stayed underground or even just left England for the time being, one individual being John Knox, who would go to Geneva at this time. And a little sidebar fun fact is this is whenever the Geneva Bible was put together. But up to this point, the English Reformation was generally a mixture of Lutheran ideas, um, various Protestant leaders in Europe, and then zealous English reformers. But after the exile under Mary, uh, Bloody Mary, uh, many were affected by the traditions of Reformed persuasion, more so than Lutheranism because of the various struggles in Lutheran territory. They didn't really have access to that. Um, and the reformers took in English refugees. And so contrary to Lutheranism, the Swiss had Protestant settlements led by reformed leaders such as Calvin's Geneva. So these settlements would inspire the English and give them ideas for how they would operate in the future. And we'll see this come into play as we move through this episode and the next one. Now, eventually Mary Tudor died in 1558 and the English exiles returned to England under Queen Elizabeth I. And of course, they pushed for further reform of the English church um, as Anglican parish ministers. So these were leaders who were um, in the Anglican church. That's the Church of England, the National Church, right? Um, and they were pushing for further reform. And then in 1563, some of these leaders put forward a proposal to the Anglican's governing body, which would seek to tolerate those individuals um, who wanted to be free from clerical vestments, right? Um, that's special robes that you would have to wear during services. And they would also push for tolerance of those who didn't want to use the sign of the cross in baptism or those who didn't want to kneel for communion, um, those who wanted to remove organs from churches, um, and then those who wanted to reduce the number of holy days on the calendar. Um, this proposal was rejected by the governing body by a single vote. And so this basically led individuals to seek reform by basically bypassing the Anglican government. And from there, um, there were individuals who would actively seek reform. And then there were individuals who would just not enforce particular practices. And they would be called into conferences, um, which the it's kind of a different idea. It's kind of like a trial, but that's even still kind of misleading. But they were called into conferences that basically discussed a variety of issues uh, most of which were mentioned above, but the clerical vestments, the robes, what they would wear during services, the white gown, right? 
Um, they were the ones that became the big issue, the kind of the sticking point. Um, so those who sought reform argued that those garments were relics of Rome, and it confused the laymen in regards to who was Catholic and who was Protestant. So the controversy uh, kept growing and became more significant and became the major focus, so much so that when conferences and persuasion failed to convince the dissidents to just use the clerical vestments, Matthew Parker, the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1565, canceled all their licenses, um, making it to where they couldn't preach unless they conformed and accepted the clerical vestments. So London ministers actually gathered in Lambeth Palace, um, and they were ordered to conform or be suspended. And, and there you have 61 individuals conforming, and then 37 refused. Uh, Nick Needham actually quotes, eventually most of the nonconformists did submit. The argument that prevailed with them was whether it was worth losing their congregations over a mere vestment. Most decided it was not, end quote. So the remaining nonconformists um, appealed to Henrik Bullinger of Zurich. And this individual was kind of the face of Reformed theology following the death of John Calvin and Peter Virgimil. And Bullinger was called, called in due to his influence over the English Protestants, right? Because he gave aid to English Protestant refugees under Mary Tudor. And so he had a big influence with the English. But unfortunately for those who are nonconformists and who didn't want to submit to the vestments, Bullinger actually supported Matthew Parker in saying that they should just wear the clerical vestments. Um, he noted that clerical vestments were acceptable and that if the authority decided that they should be worn, then the clergy had no place to reject those decisions. So Bullinger also told two of the leading nonconformists, Thomas Sampson and Loris Humphrey, that they ought not resign over this matter. Now, Sampson and Humphrey persisted in their nonconformity, and then the archbishop, again, Parker, took Sampson from his post as the dean of Christ Church, and he was suspended. Now, Humphrey, he was actually left untouched because he was outside of Parker's jurisdiction, but anyway, he eventually conformed and restored the use of vestments as the dean of Magdalen College. So it was during this struggle where Puritanism was first used, and it was a derogatory term for those who were dissidents of the Anglican Church. So with that all said, I'm going to take a play out of Nick Needham's volume. Uh, again, I, I can't recommend Nick Needham's volumes on church history enough. They're just so easily read and accessible, and he breaks down information so well. But I'm going to look at his um, section on this, and he spends time defining Puritanism in a very helpful historical way. Um, and so a lot of this is going to be straight from his volume to define Puritanism. And we often think of Puritans as um, a single-minded, uniform outlook, right? When, in fact, there are different kinds of Puritans. So we can't make a straight and narrow definition. Um, it, it's not possible, but we tend to, right? So Nick Needham says, quote, Some answers that may spring to mind must be rejected. For example, we cannot define Puritanism by its adherence to Reformed theology. The definition would be far too broad. It would make all Calvinists into Puritans. But French, Swiss, German, and Dutch Calvinists were not Puritans. Even if we restrict ourselves to England, there were many English Calvinists who did not identify with the contemporary movement nicknamed Puritan. So Needham also continues noting that there were non-Calvinists who identified themselves with the Puritan movement, one of which being the famous John Milton, who was an Arminian. Um, and he's also noted as the Puritan poet, in other works. 
Um, Nick Needham continues, quote, Others focus on a certain kind of spirituality as the heart of Puritanism, yet it is difficult, again, to pin down what this distinctive spirituality was. If it was understood as taking the Bible and preaching seriously, insisting on the authentic experience of God and striving after holiness, then this present writer would humbly suggest that these have been hallmarks of most forms of vital Christianity throughout the Christian centuries, end quote. Uh, further, he says, we might be on better ground if we say that Puritanism had a distinctive view of worship. Most students know that the conflicts in the English church from 1559 to 1662 often revolved around worship and that the Puritans believe in the regulative principle that nothing must be done in worship unless authorized by scripture. Even so, this was a more broadly reformed ideal in the history of those times in England, Scotland, and continental Europe shows that the regulative principle itself was capable of a variety of varying interpretations, end quote. So as noted earlier, right, uh, Bullinger and Virgil did not share the same interpretation in regards to vestments. Um, and so Needham would argue that the Puritans embraced not just a standard idea of what is called the regulative principle, but a particular application of it. And so you have the Puritans where there were differences in this application of this regulative principle. And just to say it again, the regulative principle is that um, unless something is explicitly stated in Scripture, you're not to worship in that way or to act in that way, depending on your interpretation. Um, sometimes it's both, sometimes it's one, and, uh, one or. Um, and so this differences in application for the Puritans can be seen in whether or not liturgies were allowed, hymns were allowed, the Lord's Prayer was allowed, Christmas Day sermons were allowed, or even Christmas itself was allowed, funeral sermons, etc. Essentially, there was not a uniform understanding on these issues. And so Nick Needham even expands further. He says, uh, one interesting theological conviction that many historians think was almost exclusively Puritan was Sabbatarianism, a belief that the Christian Sunday was essentially identical with the Old Testament Sabbath and should be rigorously kept as a day of rest for worship, neither work nor recreation being allowed. This, however, was rather late in developing, and he also notes that there were many anti-Puritans like Lancelot Andrews who were Sabbatarian. And of course, in addition, in the second half of the 17th century, a lot of English Protestantism were Sabbatarians. So Needham thus suggests, quote, rather than create a definition of our own, possibly framed to include all of our heroes and exclude our villains, perhaps we should try a different tact and use the word Puritan as it was used in the 16th and 17th century, end quote. So how the word was used by the Anglican establishment was to designate those who had wanted to reform the Church of England further. And sometimes this was manifested by um, what was to be done in worship. Sometimes this was by um, how they wanted the ecclesiology, that is the doctrine of the church, to be structured, um, sometimes introducing a Presbyterian ecclesiology. Um, so sometimes the term um, precision was used as well as the term Puritan, and that term means one who was too precise. So in this schema, Puritans were a party of Anglicanism. So Nick Needham notes, quote, to set Puritan against Anglican, therefore, as some modern interpreters do, makes a nonsense of how people of that era understood matters. End quote. So, of course, Nignum does note that Anglican is a term that was also late, but it's useful now to describe what was going on in the English National Church. But basically, a Puritan were those who wanted to reform further the English Church. They were a branch of Anglicanism. Um, so further, it's noted that Puritan, on the ground, on the popular level, was used for anyone who took his or her Christianity seriously and tried to live a godly life. 
Nick Needham quotes on this. He says, uh, it meant nothing more than a holy Joe, a member of the God Squad, or a Bible basher, end quote. Um, and so it was basically a derogatory term, an abusive label, right? And then Nick Needham points out that uh, Richard Baxter in the 17th century testified that his own father was insulted as a Puritan in this way, though Baxter Sr. had no quarrel with the Church of England, but simply sought to live an authentic Christian life. So in Baxter's own words, anyone was abusively termed Puritan if they only talked of God, heaven, scripture, and holiness. And then you get to the English Civil War, and after that, definition became more specific, and labels started to be used as um, such as independents, Baptists, Anabaptists, Dippers, Presbyterians, etc. And a good example of this that Nick Needham uses is John Owen, he would be considered an independent. And um, in a writing as 1641, there were all different kinds of Puritans. There were church policy Puritans, religious Puritans, state Puritans, moral, etc. So basically, a single box is hard to check in regards to the term. So the best rule of thumb is to go with the historical terminology, and that is those who were Anglicans who desired further reform. Um, and then you kind of even go from there, the Puritans who were separatists, and we'll get there as well. So going back to our discussion, uh, there was the controversy surrounding the vestments, and that led to some Puritans, um, again, the Anglican dissidents, to become separatists, as I just mentioned. And of course, this was seen in different degrees. Um, one example, that's a loose example because they weren't fully separatists, uh, was a group that met underneath the guise of holding weddings but truly, they were just participating in communion and listening to preaching outside of the National Church of England. Uh, this group was actually arrested in 1567. They were questioned and held in prison for a year. Um, and then a more, more mainline separatist group uh, was a congregation that rejected the entire Anglican church as corrupt and basically said that the true Christians had to depart. And this group was in prison, prison as well. Um, both of these are famous, um, how they're depicted can differ, um, but the odds and ends of these examples won't really be expanded, and we'll just move on to the 1570s. Um, so at this time, there are three different mindsets among Puritans, and I'm going to rely on Nick again, just for the sake of ease of organization, because history gets really tangled up. So anyway, the first group would be those who dislike clerical vestments and certain policies of the Anglican Church, but they held that active disobedience to the state church would be sinful anarchy. So they didn't look to change the church government, uh, nor did they take much influence or um, action based off of what the Reformed tradition had been doing elsewhere. Uh, but instead, they conformed and they pressed others to do the same, and they focused on preaching and teaching, and that was their top priority, right? Um, so eventually this group would fade um, as time went on um, because they conformed. And so these individuals started off as Puritans who just disagreed, but they worked with the system, and then eventually they just became Anglican members. Now, one of these individuals we've already spoken about was Lawrence Humphrey, um, the man mentioned earlier, who was once anti-vestment. And then you had John Fox, who is famous for his Fox Book of Martyrs. Now, the second group were those who disliked the vestments and other elements of medieval tradition, um, while holding that the Anglican Church needed to reform its organization better, and they needed to promote a national Protestant faith. And now this group differed in how that vision would be put into practice in terms of their roles, but they were unified in the idea that they were to submit in accordance to their leadership and they refused to make changes on their own initiative, right? So they focused on preaching and teaching, 
And the idea was that they would teach others and influence others, and then reform would come from that, right? And then there was the last group, um, which were the militant Presbyterians who actively and aggressively challenged the Anglican establishment. Um, and this is quoting Nick Needham. They believed that Presbyterian church government was the only biblical pattern so that they could invoke divine authority for its establishment, end quote. So this group pushed for changes in the 39 Articles of Faith, which is the Anglican Confession, and they pushed for reforms in the form of worship. Uh, they took inspiration from other models internationally. They didn't just look to the uh, English National Church, but they looked to other models that were happening in um, Switzerland and Germany, right? And they appealed to Parliament. Um, they went directly to Parliament and appealed to Parliament to take control of the church and to introduce these reforms into the government doctrine and liturgy. And Nick Needham notes that this Presbyterian group still operated within the Church of England, so we should still think of them as Anglican Presbyterians, end quote. So from here, the developments of the English Reformation become really complex and too large for this particular episode. So we're, so we're narrowing and we're narrowing and narrowing where we're focusing. All of these things had ripples through the Church of England, but this isn't all that was happening. At the same time, there were other things happening in the Church of England, such as a heavy emphasis on education of ministers. Uh, they would study the Bible, and they would have uh, a specialty assigned to them, such as Hebrew, Greek, history, logic, or something else. Um, and then there was a significant discussion on ecclesiology in the English church, um, and they had that go on for a long time. And then the early 1600s, we find the rise of the General Baptists and uh, more heavy separatist mentalities among those who um, desired reform. So it just keeps going on and on. As we narrow in, though, John Robinson is a noteworthy figure here. And he was a Puritan Anglican clergyman who eventually would become a separatist. And he would live within the Dutch Re Republic as an exile from England. And his church from the Dutch Republic, who was, um, which was led by a William Bradford, decided to set sail for North America and the reasons for this are, are multiple, but ultimately you had 28 members of Robinson's congregation and some others who were not part of the congregation, um, along with their children, boarding the ship known as the Mayflower, uh, which sailed from Plymouth and Devon on September 6, 1620, and landed in Cape Cod, Massachusetts in November. Uh, and the reason why they landed in Cape Cod was because they were blown off course. They, they wanted to go to Virginia but they got blown off course and they landed in Cape Cod. Um, this would be the first separatist community, political and religious, in North America, and their colony was called Plymouth, and they are known as the Pilgrim Fathers. Um, so while they were the first separatist colony and were founded with a specifically religious motive, they were not the first settlers in North America. So I just want to make that clear. Um, they were also not the first settlers in North America with strong Christian convictions which is important as well. And of course, uh, you know, an example of this is Jamestown. Jamestown was formed in 1607. Um, Jamestown is often written down in history books as being uh, more secular, more interested in wealth, more interested in money, right? Uh, apparently there's some issues of cannibalism in Jamestown. I didn't really dig too much into that because that wouldn't be on my, my focus here, but it did consist of Anglicans mostly um, with Puritan leanings. Now, Following Plymouth, there would be other religious colonies in Massachusetts and New Haven and Connecticut who were English Puritans who had moved into separatism. They wanted to separate from the Church of England, from the national state. And Nick Needham notes that, quote, 
it has been estimated that there was something like 20,000 such immigrants who arrived in North America's East Coast in the Great Migration of 1630 to 40 to escape from the Anglican Church they found increasingly distasteful. Here were the origins of New England, the Puritan East Coast colonies of America that were to have such a formative influence on the new nation across the Atlantic. So you have these separatists who wanted to break away from the English National Church and establish um, a colony where they could self-govern and where they could worship as they pleased away from the confines of a church that for them wouldn't ever reform because it was too corrupt. And our next episode, Beyond Luther Part 5, will go specifically into these colonies and discussion about their mentality and what was going on with them. So I hope this was helpful. I hope you found it enlightening. I hope you learned something new today. Um, the next episode will be next week. I wanted them to be back to back so that they uh, would come both before October 31st. And then we'll continue our bi-weekly schedule following the episode for next week. So that's it. God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. You are.